Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Wednesday, the February, the first of February, 2012, and our special guest is Cable Green. Cable, welcome. He's waving there. Cable, I haven't ever done this before, but I did a little collage of photos from you. I thought that was kind of fun to see a little bit more about you. I expected that we wouldn't be seeing you on video. That was my way of kind of adjusting for it. The Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project. It's finding places to allow educators to communicate, part of the Web 2.0 world. And Blackboard Collaborate, uh, the user group I run for Collaborate is called wecollaborate.com. Uh, we won't go through all the details of the ISTE events this year, but just remember there's a ton of fun that happens. It's all community organized and based. Go to isteunplugged.com. Uh, we've rebranded EduBloggerCon, which is now in its fifth year. It's going to be called Social EdCon, the all-day unconference that starts us off. Lots more fun, that whole uh, conference at ISTE. In fact, uh, not up on the screen, but just announced today is we're going to do the same thing at Q, the Computer Using Educators Conference in California. So go, for that, go to qunplugged.com. It is also the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0, two really fun projects. Just to make you aware of, one is called Ed Incubator, helping small startups um, get an authentic educator council. So our first group is PBS NewsHour. They're kind of breaking the ground for us. We're trying to learn and make sure that we do this well. We have a little bit of a waiting list of other groups that want to come in and get good advice from educators. We'll see how it goes. Please join us. Go up to Ed Incubator on the menu at classroom20.com. Click on PBS NewsHour and join us for some fun. Also, we've announced a crowdsourced book program, sort of a treasury of best practices of using the web in the classroom. And uh, that's the book link at the top. We've just announced that. We are going to publish every submission. Uh, on the web. We'll select some number of those to go in the actual physical book, but we're trying to create an ecosystem here for you to get noticed for the work that you're doing. Coming up on our worldwide and free virtual conferences, we are going to announce a Classroom 2.0 fifth anniversary celebration, but we don't have a date for that. Gaming and education on April 26th, thanks to BrainPop, 12 hours worldwide talking about gaming in ed. The alternate education conference, homeschooling, unschooling, virtual schooling, May 10th to 12th. The Library 2.0 Future of Library, 2.012 Future of Libraries Conference, sponsored again this year by San Jose State University, October 3 to 5. And the Global Education Conference, the Mothership, November 12 to 16th. Again, these are all free, lots of fun. Hope you'll join us for them. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow night, a terrific panel on personal learning profiles. Hope you'll join us for that. Lorette Lynn next week, the Unplugged Mom. Alan Blankstein on Improving Individual Schools. Khalid Smith on Startup Weekend EDU. Jane Hart on Social Learning. You're lots there. David Weinberger, Mimi Ito, Kathy Davidson. Howard Rheingold, Jennifer Fox, and new as of today, Julie Lindsay and Vicki Davis to talk about their new book, Flattening Classrooms. If you've missed one of the shows, they are all recorded and up in full collaborate recordings and MP3 recordings as well. David Lurcher last night talked to us about the library as learning commons and personal learning environments. If you haven't listened to David, this is a really interesting bridge between the library 2.0 world and the ed tech world, but a delightful conversation with him. We're going to have him on again. That was his second time, but promise, I promise he'll come back. Lee Crockett talked about 21st century fluencies. Henry Eyring talked about the innovative university. Sean Lesbaum Beach, the connected educator. 
Mitch Perlstein talked about the fragmentation of the family. That one was fascinating as well. Anyway, they're all good. So hopefully there's something of there that's of interest to you. So we have a, a smaller group tonight, but we're going to give you a chance to let us know where you're listening from. Look to the left of the map for some icons. You're looking for the star or the sun icon. Double click on that, click on the map. It's also fun if you shout out in the chat and let us know what your location is, the time, the temperature, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The cables in Denver on vacation, which is kind of you to come for this. Wherever you're listening from, and if you're listening to the recording, thanks so much for joining us. This is sort of an encore performance with the addition of questions because Cable did present as a keynote recently, and so we're delighted. This is a this is in fact this is a talk I'm guessing you give quite often. Cable, is that correct? Actually, uh, when you saw it at the Open Ed Conference, that was the first time I'd ever done it. I was pretty nervous. Oh, you did a great job. And then you did it for us, I think, for the Global Education Conference, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, all right. We did a version of it, and I did it at the Sloan Conference as well, and uh, a few more coming up. I, they're all different, but they have a similar theme. Well, I've noticed you have some new slides, so I'm looking forward to you going through this. Feel free to go through at whatever speed is comfortable for you. Um, you know, I do have some questions for you, so I'm hoping that we'll get to a place where we can actually kind of drill down a little. But this is your story, and it's a good one. So I'm going to let you, you're, you're going to give me indicators to move the slides forward, but I'm going to let you go. And if those of you in the audience, you're going to hear him say sly, and that's me. That, I'm the, I'm, that's my job is to move the slides forward. Great. Well, thanks very much, and uh, thanks again for the invitation, and uh, I hope that we have a great conversation tonight. So the, the title of this thing, and I'll move the first couple slides, uh, Steve, the, uh, it's called The Obviousness of Open Policy, and I, I call it that because I really believe that's the case, and I hope that by the end of our discussion today, you too will think that uh, open policy is obvious to help us get to where we need to be. Uh, so this first slide, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, take a look at my notes here. Uh, so one of the uh, one of the examples I use to make the point is uh, I talk about a food machine and I say, you know, look, if you look at the World Food Program, there are about 925 million undernourished people in the world today. It means there's a whole bunch of people not getting food. And what if we had a food machine that we could turn on, feed everybody? Marginal cost of doing it was close to zero. Didn't hurt anybody. Didn't hurt any farmers. The net result is. Everybody's got enough food to eat. The question for all of us is, should we turn on the machine? So let's take a vote, and uh, let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, click on the green check if you think we should feed everybody, and a red X if you think we should not. Again, remember, the marginal cost of feeding everybody on the planet is zero. So we'll come back to this uh, in a minute. Uh, in, while we, uh, we don't have a food machine, um, I believe that we have a learning machine. And so I, I start with, uh, uh, my education dream, in fact, uh, many others' dreams, and that is that everybody in the world can attain the education uh, that they desire. So I'm going to go ahead and switch here, and then I'll go to the next slide. And uh, good news that uh, this isn't just a dream, but not just my dream, but many have this dream. In uh, 2006, Kathy Casserly, my current boss at Creative Commons, and Mike Smith uh, were both at the Hewlett Foundation, and they wrote 
and I quote, at the heart of the movement toward open education resources is the simple and powerful idea that the world's knowledge is a public good and that technology in general and the World Wide Web in particular provide an opportunity for everyone to share, use, and reuse it, end quote. Well, let's go to the next slide. It should be the Cape Town Declaration. If you haven't seen the Cape Town Declaration, please take a look at it. It's probably the best document that I've seen that really lays out uh, what the possibilities are today around education when you use the Internet, when things are digital, when you use open licensing, uh, and when your intent is to share. So the first sentence in the Cape Town Declaration is, and I quote, we are on the cusp of a global revolution in teaching and learning. Educators worldwide are developing a vast pool of educational resources on the Internet, <clears throat> open and free for all to use. These educators are creating a world where each and every person on Earth can access and contribute to the sum of all human knowledge. Slide. So, so that's all great, and the vision's good, but the, uh, the policy issue, and this is where I'm particularly interested, Policymakers can't do anything with that information. The vision or, uh, or, or any policy they might enact if they don't understand what's possible. And in fact, most policymakers don't understand the technology and the legal tools that many of us understand. And if they don't understand those tools, they simply don't have the tools they need to quote unquote turn on this learning machine. So, to be clear, understanding the opportunity afforded by wielding these tools, by these tools I mean the Internet, things being digital, open Creative Commons licensing, uh, and, and people's willingness to share on the web, if you don't understand those things, you can't even comprehend what's possible with, with OER. And so, you know, to summarize, without this understanding, policymakers can only make decisions within existing frameworks and within existing business models. So, so what's our job uh, slide? Let's go to the cost of copy slide. Uh, our job really is to, uh, to educate them on what's possible. So a couple quick slides. Uh, th these are from David Wiley, uh, stats that he took off Amazon's AWS services where, you, of course, you can host stuff for almost free. So David likes to say that um, you know, if you look at the cost of a textbook, uh, take a 250-page pretty common length for a textbook, if you want to copy that thing by hand, cost a $1,000. You do print on demand, it's under five bucks. You copy it, a digital version of it, and you can see it's point zero 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 eight four cents. Let's go to the next slide, the copy or cost to distribute. And so you've got copy costs and you've got distribution costs. Uh, and distribution costs, again, you want to you want to mail the thing, it's roughly five bucks. You want to send it over the internet, you can see it's you know point zero 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 seven two. So next slide. What's the point? Well the point is that <coughs> copy and distribution are, are free when you've got something that's digital. And when things are digital, it in fact changes everything. So let me just come back here and I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and move my slides for a minute. So let me just tell you a little bit about Creative Commons because Creative Commons and open licensing where I work is really core to um, a frictionless sharing of digital content on the web is really what it's about. <laughs> so Creative Commons is a simple standardized way to grant copyright permissions to other people without giving up your copyright. And this is very important. Um, many people think that if you're going to share something that's digital, you have to put it in the public domain, or if I give it to you, um, in fact, I, uh, I give it to you and now I don't have it anymore, 
uh, and that's not the case. The good news of, uh, is that you can in fact put an open license uh, and have some rights reserved and you keep your copyright and you get to determine what's done with your works and under what conditions. So when you go to the Creative Commons page, just creativecommons.org, We've got a license choose. You just click on get a license right in the middle of the page and you simply choose the conditions. And so all of our licenses require attribution. Share alike simply means if somebody changes your stuff, they have to re-license the derivative work or the new thing that they built under the same license that you selected. Non-commercial is pretty clear. It means you can't make commercial use of it. And then no derivatives, of course, means you can't make modifications to my work. You choose those things and you mix and mash and you get, uh, you get one of these six licenses. Uh, you've probably seen these all over the web. Uh, and then, of course, these licenses can, uh, are, exist on this continuum from you know, what I call least free to most free, or kind of uh, fewest degrees of freedom down here at the bottom to most uh, degrees of freedom up at the top. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Complexity comes with many choices. And that's why uh, if you look at, uh, say, the free and cultural works definition and those folks, they will really kind of guide you toward the top three licenses here. And in fact, as I, when I'm working with folks uh, around open educational resources, if at all possible, we really try to stay up toward the top of this continuum because, uh, again, it's around degrees of freedom. So if your intent is to share, you want to give as much flexibility as you can to users who are downstream and might, might make derivative works. Uh, when I was in Washington State, and I see some folks from Washington State uh, on today, thanks for joining. Uh, we built, and they are still building, an open course library, the whole gen ed curriculum for community colleges, and they chose the CC BY license up here. Good news about CC licenses is that they're not just the legal code, but in fact there's three layers to every license, and this makes them significantly more powerful than any other legal documents that are out there around sharing. First of all is the legal code, which you would expect uh, for lawyers to read if you ever get sued and have to go to court or you need to sue somebody else. You've got the legal code to do it. CC licenses have been uh, upheld every time they've gone to court. They're, uh, they're uh, solid legal licenses. The human readable deed uh, you've all seen uh, and are familiar with and the machine readable um, is, is critical because, of course, uh, then uh, computers on the Internet search engines can actually uh, not only see the license but can uh, decipher the, the metadata that's in them. And let me go ahead and uh, pause here because I see Steve has his hand up. Go ahead, Steve. So, Cable, uh, you're obviously employed by Creative Commons. What's, the what's Creative Commons' source of revenue? Yeah, it's a great question because all the licenses are free. They, there are over 500 million of them uh, being used on the web, and we didn't charge anybody anything for the licenses. So who pays for Creative Commons operating costs? Uh, one is just the users of Creative Commons who just give uh, a little bit of money in our annual campaign, just like people give to, uh, to Wikipedia when they ask for money because they're happy that Wikipedia exists. So there are many folks, yeah, sort of like PBS, right? Uh, when you're driving in your car and the PBS says, please send us money, we rely on you, uh, we do some of that too. Um, and a big chunk of our revenue, in fact, comes from that. Uh, also foundations that are happy that we exist because uh, they like to see knowledge shared uh, in a more frictionless environment. Uh, foundations give us money. And we get, uh, sometimes we'll get uh, contracts to do certain projects. So for example, right now, Creative Commons is working to support, along with our partners, uh, the Department of Labor tact grantees. So all the community colleges that got $500 million to build new programs were actually providing support, and we received a big grant to provide that support. 
so uh, a whole mix of uh, different fund sources, but uh, that's where we get our money from. Okay, uh, I'll watch uh, or listen for Steve's hand to go up again, but I uh, see he put it down, so I'll jump back into it. So just uh, three uh, three versions of the license. Human readable deed here you, you've seen. Uh, next one here, uh, this is the lawyer readable code. You've, uh, if you're a lawyer, you're probably interested in this. If you're not like me, you probably never look at that. And then, of course, the machine-readable code uh, is very important because if your uh, object that you're sharing is digital, could be a song, could be a video, could be a course, could be a textbook, could be all sorts of things, um, if it's got the machine-readable metadata on it, um, then in fact it can be found by search engines. So a good example is if you go to Flickr or if you go to, um, you go to YouTube, you'll actually see the, the license on it. And if you're at a, a search engine, and you could, you could find those openly licensed materials. In fact, you can search by open license. So this is a chart that just kind of shows you the exponential growth. You can see back in 2003, you know, there were very, very few people using Creative Commons, and it simply exploded. And in fact, these numbers are already uh, out of date. Now it's uh, well over 500 million, and it's growing extremely fast, mainly because of several of the platform adoptions uh, that Creative Commons has had uh, lately with Blackboard and with YouTube and with Vimeo I and mean, just all sorts of them. Uh, so we operate in, in multiple different areas. Uh, certainly in culture, certainly where we started uh, was working with artists who wanted to share their uh, their creative works. Uh, science is huge. If you can th think about science for a minute, right? That's what we do in the academies. We build new knowledge. We share it. But from a scientific uh, perspective, especially, think about medicine. The uh, the critical nature of sharing. Uh, information and data and research in close to real time, so that others can, you know, take your uh, your cancer trial that you that you're working on with your NIH grant and take it to the next level. It's absolutely critical. Governments are starting to talk about open policy, which we'll get to in a minute. And of course, open educational resources is absolutely uh, absolutely key. So, uh, important thing about Creative Commons, even though we're headquartered in uh, in California, but we've got uh, staff all over the United States and all over the world. The real power of Creative Commons comes in the CC affiliates that are around the world, and we've got 72 teams of dedicated uh, people in all these different countries uh, who are educators and lawyers, and, and these folks spend all their time. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, in many cases at no pay, working on uh, open licensing, working on advocacy of openness, helping other people understand not only Creative Commons, but, but uh, why open is so important uh, as the world progresses. Uh, Wikipedia, huge user. They use the CC BY SA license. Uh, Flickr, again, if you upload your images, you can not only tag your images with uh, CC licenses, but you can search by others. Uh, White House uses CC BY and all of its stuff. Higher education's pretty much where I work, and, and in K-12, uh, obviously, uh, we all know about MIT OpenCourseWare, but there are hundreds of universities and colleges which have gone open. Uh, you'll find a lot of them at the OpenCourseWare Consortium. Uh, Foundations are now starting to require that if you take money from them, that you put a CC BY uh, license on what you take. Uh, Hewlett's been doing that for years. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is starting to do that. Shuttleworth does that. Uh, Open Society Foundation and others. We talked about search and discovery. You can go into Google, for example, and do an advanced search by open license. Uh, CC Search is another tool that we maintain. 
uh, translation and accessibility. If something is openly licensed, you're actually able to uh, translate it into a different language. If it's not accessible enough, you can take that resource and, and mark it up so it is accessible to say a screen reader uh, if someone is maybe uh, not able to see well and needs that, that kind of assistance. Uh, customization and affordability uh, are kind of where I live as far as my reason for wanting to talk about open educational resources and I get so passionate about it in education is on the customization front. Uh, professors and teachers in K-12 can actually take openly licensed resources and legally change them, modify them, mash them up, do different things to those resources, whereas it's illegal to do that with something that's a copyrighted where you don't have permission. Uh, and affordability, of course, uh, you know, raise your hand if your students have complained about the cost of textbooks. You know, all of them have, right? And to the extent that there are open textbooks and there's open courseware out there, uh, it's absolutely critical. So let me pause for a minute and uh, we'll go back to Steve. So I hope you don't mind my doing this, but I'm, uh, what, I'm hoping to break this up just a little and give us a chance to do a little, little bit of back and forth. So um, the opening of textbooks makes a lot of sense. And, and Utah obviously just made an announcement about this and David Wiley talks a lot about it. My question would be, uh, 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 is an open textbook almost a red herring? Meaning, um, how relevant is the textbook? And is the aggregation of content actually going to stay in a form that we would call a textbook at all? Now, it sort of seems like this is sort of the next natural step. You move from proprietary textbooks sort of to open textbooks. But I, I, don't, I don't use a textbook at all in my own learning. I'm aggregating and curating content from the web. So do you, do you think that the textbook itself actually is going to live on? Uh, no. No, I'm with you 100%. I don't think it will live on. Um, I think that we're going to move to uh, you know, to find, finding resources in real time. I think resources will be on frameworks that work for faculty and for teachers. Uh, I mean, you just look at K-12 and look at what's happening in the U.S. around common core standards right now. You know, a teacher that teaches a class that's on common core standards, what are you going to want? Well, you're going to want all sorts of choices of content, both open and commercial, that's aligned with common core because you have to align with common core standards. In higher ed, you know, same thing. I mean, look, there are some common frameworks for English 101 and Psych 101. Not to say that we should have one version of a course or a textbook for everybody, uh, but I think people are going to want loosely, you know, um, loosely uh, jointed modules, just like they do today. It's what faculty do today already, right? They use even with textbooks, they'll take chapters out of sequence. They'll take parts of chapters in their syllabus. They're already mixing and mashing. Uh, so yeah, I think that the reason that we talk about open textbooks today so much in OER is that's where K-12 is. They buy textbooks. And frankly, that's where higher ed is in many cases. A lot of courses have textbooks. And to the extent that they're required to, for full participation in the class and they're very, very expensive, uh, it's a target. And one of the sort of open policy strategies is to go after highest enrolled courses because that's where the numbers are. And one of the reasons to go after textbooks is that's where a lot of the money is. The, the amount of money that students in higher ed spend on textbooks annually approaches $9 billion a year. And when student debt has now passed credit card debt, you know, many of us, including me, would argue that's not okay. So as long as textbooks are around, let's go after them with open textbooks. Yeah, it is a curiosity to me, and I think in part because this, uh, there was some clarity for me when Apple made their announcement, which was it almost felt like continuing to call it a textbook 
actually allowed the major publishers and Apple to define their own relevancy still in the marketplace. And, and so that's sort of an intriguing point, which is I can't decide whether you know, the argument is really important that there's a lot of money there, or should we be saying you know, the textbook in and of itself needs to go away? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think it'll be around as long as faculty are still choosing textbooks, which uh, you know, by my estimation, is probably five years. And uh, you know, what Apple's doing, I think mostly it's about selling, um, you know, selling devices. Uh, they don't make any secret about that. Um, if you look at the the EULAs that they've got that people have to sign, it's pretty clear that they want to maintain the same kind of channels that they have with iTunes. Um, you know, on the other hand, Apple is um, you know a very elegant uh, platform, not an open platform, but a very elegant platform. Uh, I'm on using my Mac right now, and um, I think there's great opportunity around if we can get Apple to uh, allow uh, the authors to tag and license by, uh, or I'm sorry, to tag uh, their content by license and allow users to search by license. That'll be uh, that'll be really great, and not just in the iTunes platform, but but for the new iBooks platform as well. And that's certainly a conversation that we'll be having with Apple. Okay, keep going. Okay, great. And um, I just realized I can't uh, see your hand when I'm on my other screen, so I'll go a few slides and then I'll pause and come back to this. No, no, no. So, don't worry. I'll uh, let you know. Great. So we're and, on. And I think I think we saw your mother-in-law. Was that her in the we're background? On the chart. That'll be good. All right. So. So back to this idea of open policy. Why why zero in on policy? Well, it, real simple. That's where the money is, right? Most of the money in education it comes out of the public sphere. So uh, so before we get into the, what this chart is, uh, what is what do we mean by open policy? Well, open policy very simply is that when public funds are used, that what's created should be openly licensed or publicly funded resources are openly licensed resources. Uh, or as David Wiley likes to say. Buy one, get one. If the public buys something, they should get access uh, to it. And while there are certainly many open licenses and a lot of people sort of hack together their own licenses, we should really de be demanding that publicly funded educational resources should use an open license that allows the public to do what David calls the four R's, revise, reuse, remix, and redistribute. So the license has to allow for that. Um, and for the purposes of uh, open policies that contribute to the commons, we're really talking about legislation, regulation, funder mandates, things like that, right? We want the, the people who are giving the money to say, if you take this money, you will share what you build. You don't have to give it away. I mean, you, uh, you keep the copyrights. So you keep ownership. Uh, and in fact, you can commercialize it if you want to. And if you want to give your copyright away to, say, a publisher uh, and sell the thing that you produced, that's okay. But because the public paid for this thing, the public should get access to it as well. And the way that you do that is you, you throw a Creative Commons license on it, and hopefully the most, you know, a more liberal license like a CC BY or a CC BY SA license, and then the people who paid for it actually get access to it. All right? It's a very simple argument. Now, so what's this chart? Well, this chart is simply shows uh, the, the percentage of GDP that countries spend on education. And if you, you look at all the countries in the world, it's about 5%. That's a lot of money, right? Brazil, five percent of their GDPs, um, you know, roughly two point one trillion dollars. So let's go to the next slide uh, that says uh, global GDP. If you add everybody up, it's just under sixty trillion dollars a year. We spend about three trillion a year on education. 
So that's a lot of money, right? It's, I mean, you're talking about a lot of money. And if we can move to a simple uh, open public policy, in fact, hundreds of billions of dollars every year of educational resources, scientific research and literature could be available under an open license. It would be freely and legally available to the public that paid for it. And so to the extent that national, provincial, state governments play a role in setting policies, and they, they in fact set policy and legislation around the investments that are made in research and in education, they have a significant role to play in this. Let's go to the next slide with the bicycles. So, so that's why open policies are important. And you know, people gripe about uh, OER sustainability or open sustainability, and I say, you know, garbage, that's not an issue. If in fact you get this simple open policy idea right, you have no sustainability issues because there is so much money in the public sphere that goes into education. And if we simply make a requirement that those things that are produced are open, in fact, you have way more money than you need to sustain all the OER efforts and all the open access efforts. And, and the trick here is that we, we shift so that open becomes the default and closed becomes the exception. And in fact, today, it's opposite, right? Today, the default is closed is the default and open is the exception. And we need to switch that. We're in the wrong frame today. And I'll give you, I'll give you a real world example. Um, so the state of Washington uh, dropped a bill in the legislature that's being considered right now that says if you build something with uh, state money, you will put a CC BY SA license on whatever you build. You keep the copyright faculty uh, members at the universities and the community colleges, but you have to share with everybody else what you produced. Uh, and if you don't like those terms, don't take the state money, right? It's no different than taking a, uh, a grant from a foundation or from the Department of Labor or, or the NIH grant for research. Um, it, the default, however, today is closed and many of the faculty from the universities showed up and said, uh, you know, no, we don't like uh, this, this policy. And they didn't like it for a whole bunch of reasons, which we can get into later, but uh, they were not willing to go, go that route. Now, ironically enough, the community college faculty, uh, bless them, showed up and said, we think this is a fabulous idea and we support it. So let me pause for a minute and go back to Steve. So um, Larry Lessig was at the heart of Creative Commons uh, when, it was, when it was built. I mean, I, I don't know that story well enough, but I'm sure that you do. Larry's current push is clearly on the role of money in our government, especially in Congress. Um, does Larry ever talk about the role of money in uh, the politics around education? And clearly there's going to be pushback here in a really big way. So how do you hack at the roots of that? Is this, is this that effort? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yes, so several questions there. Yeah, yes, Larry's talking about money in politics right now and how it fundamentally uh, corrupts an honest conversation about real issues, and he's got a new book about that very thing, um, and he's kind of interested in that. Uh, yes, so he's talking about it. Um, yes, money does, uh, not just money, um, and I wouldn't directly blame current flows of money. I more blame all of us for not being willing or able to think in new ways. And that was really my point back on that slide of the Capitol where I said we have to help policymakers understand what's possible today. So if you're, if you're a policy, if you're a legislator in the U.S. Congress today, all you know is what you know. You probably have no idea about Creative Commons. You don't know that you can openly license something and still allow somebody to keep 
the copyright. You probably don't know that. Uh, you probably know that there's something called the internet, but you probably don't know the affordances of digital things. You probably don't know that you can make a billion copies of something uh, like a textbook for the marginal cost of zero and share it with everybody in the United States and you could probably uh, you know, drop the student debt load somewhere south of the trillion dollars that it has already passed. Uh, you probably aren't thinking that way. So, you know, I, the reason I call this talk the obviousness of open policy is that I believe, and in fact my experience has been, when you sit down with policymakers and you sit down with the people who have control of the purse strings, of the money, and you talk them through these things, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle people are on, a Democrat, Republican, or any other party, people say, gosh, this just kind of makes sense. Like, why would we, uh, you know, why would we pay the University of Washington to build English 101, and not just build it once, but build it the 15 times of the 15 different faculty that are teaching it, but then also pay you know, Columbia Basin College, which is on the call here, to build English 101 25 times because they have a lot more students taking English 101. Well, why would we do that, right? That just seems crazy. And, and, and you're telling me those people aren't sharing with each other, and in fact there's no requirement for them to share? And you're telling me that the same taxpayers in the state of Washington paid for both of those four or all of those 40 sections of English 101 to, to essentially recreate the wheel and nobody's sharing. And in fact, if one faculty asked another faculty member to share, they could legally say, no, I'm not going to give you my stuff. Now, most people would say, that's nuts. And you sit down and have this conversation with, uh, with policymakers and they agree with you very quickly. So I think what I really I really like about this talk and uh, hearing it now for the third time and it's but in its newest incarnation is that in fact you're tapping into a really valuable narrative and that's you know sort of the the money narrative and so rather than saying you know we should be Jeffersonian and every, you know, we should be lighting everybody else's candle and the room grows brighter or like uh, Richard Stallman that we all need to be Boy Scouts and this is sort of the the do a good turn daily by sharing. You know, this becomes a message that that should resonate with policymakers, and I, I think it's brilliant. Well, thank you. I, I'm going to send him twenty dollars for calling me brilliant. I, maybe I'm not brilliant. The argument's brilliant. So, uh, so let me go ahead and jump forward here. The um, so, so again, it's simple, right? Here's the argument on the screen. You walk up to a legislator and you ask them these, these three questions. Uh, do you care about efficient use of, of state uh, or federal tax money? Yeah, right? Who's going to say no to that? Do you want to save students money? Uh, and do you want to increase access to education? Yes, 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 right? It's a very, very simple. And uh, Steve, could you go to the next slide where it says cooperate and share? And if those arguments don't work, you go to these, right? It, uh, most of the academy will say, uh, yeah, when we cooperate and share, that's good, right? That's what we do in the academy. We share knowledge. Affordability, that tugs on some people's heartstrings. Students can't afford textbooks, let's make that better. Uh, Self-interest, you go to a lot of faculty and they'll say, gosh, you know, I, I want to be more famous or I'm about ready to retire and I want my legacy to live on. Like, I've got an ego. Fine, share. It, you, know, you will be more known and popular if you share your stuff. And then you got a bunch of bleeding heart liberals like me who say this is a social justice issue. In fact, if the marginal cost of sharing knowledge is close to zero, then you've got a, you, you, I believe we have an ethical and moral responsibility to share. So uh, next slide, this, uh, this funny lady who's upside down. Uh, so what's possible with open policies? Remember we said there's a whole bunch of money in the public sphere and if we're, uh, we're, we're going after highest enrolled courses. So what's possible? Well, 
um, there's a whole bunch of money out there in the public, right? If you look at the European Commission, uh, they spend $640 billion a year on basic R&D research. So this is like NSF uh, type funds or NIH funds. But, but $640 billion a year, I mean, think if all that was required to be openly licensed. How much faster would science progress? How much faster could we get a cure for cancer? How much faster would we get new drugs? I don't know, but a lot faster than we do if it's closed. The U.S. spends approximately 60 billion dollars a year on NSF and NIH grants. So th there, in fact, is something called the Federal Research Public Access Act that will likely be introduced again this year, which will basically say um, if you're a government agency in the U.S. and you spend more than $100 million a year um, on uh, they call extramural research expenditures, these are like optional grants at the agencies, um, then all of the research and the journals that stem from that must be free. Let's go to the next slide that says textbook RFP. So uh, sort of to Steve's point, um, here's the strategy. You go where the numbers are. So I, I always talk about higher ed and K-12, and in higher ed I say, let's go where the numbers are. Let's go to highest enrolled uh, courses uh, and highest enrolled textbooks. So highest enrolled courses, that's what the Open Course Library is about. I think Jerry uh, jumped in there. Jerry, could you put uh, type in opencourselibrary.org, just so everybody's got it? Um, and that's where the, uh, the Washington uh, Community Colleges said, here's our highest enrolled curriculum. Uh, we're going to build it. We're going to put a CC BY license on it. Take it. Right? Think, if, think of the prep time that would be saved if uh, you know, professors around the world grabbed that and didn't, you know, didn't use it exactly the way it is, but used it as a base. California is about to uh, launch a bill that says $25 million of state money from California issue RFPs 50 highest enrolled textbooks, so they're going to spend a half million dollars per textbook. Anybody can reply. The publishers can reply. Uh, you know, Steve can get a group together and reply uh, and build a, one of the highest enrolled textbooks. Everything copyrighted will be held in the state of California. They're going to put a CC BY license on it. It's going to be free for everybody. Right? That's good public policy. That's thinking, right? Because California uh, has serious higher ed problems and they need some, some relief for their students. In K-12 in the U.S., it's like fall off a log simple. You go after Common Core. You got 44 states, probably 47 by the time it's done, who are adopting Common Core standards. These are states that are going to need new courses, new textbooks for their students. They're going to spend a boatload of money doing it. Why would they not want to get together and, and share and, in fact, use some, some common resources? So let me do one more slide and then I'll, I'll pause. Uh, well, two more slides and I'll pause. Uh, here's another example. So when I, was, when I worked at the Washington State Board for Community Technical Colleges, you can tell all the Washington references here, uh, we looked at the highest enrolled course in the state. And at that time it was English Composition One, probably still is. Uh, at the time the enrollments were 55,000. They're probably more now because of the economy. Uh, but, but look at the numbers, right? You, if you look at a $100 textbook, and in fact, it's not a $100 textbook. The average cost of the top 50 textbooks sold in U.S. college bookstores has passed $175. So plug that number into this instead and you get over $8 million a year. But let's be conservative and call it $5 million a year. So what does this mean? This means that just in the Washington Community Colleges for one course, for one textbook, just Washington Community College students are spending more than $5 million a year. Right? Does that make any sense? And Steve, let's go to the next slide that has the big insane sign on it. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. Right? If we were smart, we would do what California is doing, and we would uh, we would develop 
and create open textbooks and give them away to people because it costs very little to make them, it costs very little to maintain them, and then you give them away for free. And when I say it costs very little to make, I, I mean you might spend a million bucks making the thing, but if you've got like the community colleges in Washington, they've got a half million students a year um, that go through the system. The, the amount of money per student is very, very small. Back to you, Steve. Okay, so in the case of textbooks, it feels pretty clearly this is going to displace money that's been spent other places and have an impact on, say, the textbook industry. In the case of research, could a counter-argument be made that the full burden of the research costs isn't, in fact, in the government money, that there are other sort of outcomes that are positive that, that are provided for by the university or the organization retaining some ability to manage that in the future. And will they come back and say, in the moment you require that it be open, it actually is going to cost more? That felt like a, a big softball coming right across the plate. I appreciate that. So, um, so there was a, there, and, and I can uh, find the links a little bit later if we've got time at the end. Uh, but there was a study, a couple studies actually done that looked at the cost, uh, the total cost from uh, idea to a journal article published in a peer-reviewed journal of a National Institutes of Health grant. So. so I get a grant, I'm a professor, I'm at X university, it's a, it's a big NIH grant, I do the research, I do the rigorous study, I write it up, uh, it goes to the journal, the journal facilitates a peer review process. By the way, when I turned it over to the journal, I had to give my copyright over to the journal so I no longer own it anymore. Um, the journal then uh, does the peer review process. All of the faculty who are contributing to the journal are doing it at no cost, it's part of their discipline. The journal then publishes uh, the article usually a year or so after they're, they're fairly slow in their turnaround and then uh, the, my university in fact has to buy that journal subscription back um, and, uh, and then I have to pay it and if my library is going through budget cuts like all public libraries are right now, um, it's probably illegal for me to even use my own article in class because my library cut the journal and I gave up my copyright. So that's the way journal publishing works traditionally. Uh, and, and I would argue that too is an insane model. But to your point about cost, uh, by the time you get through that whole process, the cost of the journal article is about $102,000. That's how much the whole chain costs. The amount of money that the journal, uh, the Elsevier journal put into that process, I think the number is about $2,500. So of the $101,000, about $2,500 is put into the journal and look who owns it and look who's making all the money at the end, right? Journal owns the, the copyright, so they have the legal rights to it and they're selling it uh, for tremendous uh, profit margins. In fact, the, uh, the journals uh, make somewhere between 40 and 70% profit on their sales every year. It depends on which journal you're looking at. Uh, but uh, most most people in the open access, and open access is uh, part of this whole conversation, but basically says that uh, journals and research should be open, uh, say that's not okay. Uh, and in fact, because the journal does so little uh, and gets everything at the end, gets all the money and gets um, gets all the copyright, that that, that deal sucks. And, uh, and, and here's the kicker. Um, we could, we, you know, we could blame the policymakers for once they understand this for not having rational policy. Uh, all we, all we can blame for this, uh, this journal cycle that we're on is us, right? We are.
are the faculty, we are the universities who do this to ourselves. And so in fact, if you maybe somebody could uh, type in the Directory of Online Journals, DOAJ, uh, and put that link in, you'll see that more and more open access journals are coming online and they're saying, no, not anymore. From now on, uh, we have a new policy as faculty. We have a new policy as universities where we're going to publish in open access journals. We're going to do so under an open Creative Commons license and we are going to make those, uh, those available for free. And then the shift of the money is that the libraries no longer have to pay $12,000 a year in journal subscription fees, but now the college pays the open access journal maybe a thousand bucks to submit the article and be published. Because yeah, there's still a little bit of cost, but come on, the journal uh, software is open source now and so it costs almost nothing to set it up, nothing to host. Maybe a little bit of facilitation and staffing costs, but I mean look at Steve's operation here, right? Steve, Steve runs on a shoestring with, uh, with uh, very few staff, uh, mainly him. And he uses uh, software around the world and he leverages the internet and he is incredibly powerful and successful in his messaging. So this can be done if we're smart enough to leverage these tools. So I, I recently took a train trip from Salt Lake City, Utah to San Francisco. And in, in, when you go over the Sierra Nevada mountain range, you go past a place where they used to make ice. It was so cold they were the ice makers. Okay, so clearly when refrigeration came around, that industry just died. So if the argument for those journals has been the argument of distribution, of the value of distribution, then they're not going to go away without kicking and screaming. So are you seeing any cases where it actually makes, you know, where we're going to have difficulty, where the lobbying or the money is going to make the logic difficult? Yeah, so, uh, you know, what an intro to the next set of slides. I skipped over something that we kind of already talked about. So let me, let me uh, shoot in a few slides here and then, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll shut up and we'll come back to Steve. So, uh, so this one I, I like, I love. It's, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but all these pictures, um, what I did is I went to Flickr and I went to the advanced search and I said, only give me pictures that have uh, open licenses on them. And so, in fact, I'm legally allowed to use these under the conditions of giving attributions, if you look at all these slides, uh, this one was by Sookie, uh, and it's titled Massive Change, and then you've got the link there, and you can see it's under a CC BY license. So, so Steve's actually absolutely right. Uh, you know, the, the challenge here is that existing structures are difficult to change, and let's be frank about it. The people that have the power and the money want to keep the power and the money. They have no interest whatsoever of giving that up, and they will fight like hell to keep it. I mean, let's be honest about it. So, you know, most educational content businesses, which is usually what we're talking about in education, these folks are built on models, of uh, gatekeeping models of locking up resources. And now they're locking up digital resources for the sole intent of making them rivalrous so that you have to pay for them, right? They're locking them up behind a paywall. And I don't blame them for doing that, right? That's, that's what they have to do to sustain their own models. And so, you know, Steve's absolutely right. What's happening is they're starting to fight. Uh, and they have money and they have lobbyists. So Steve, let's go to the next uh, slide that says battle over online course fees. Uh, this is a case in California. California law says that students uh, be allowed to keep the educational resources they purchase when an instructional uh, material fee is charged. So if you require a student buy the textbook for your course, uh, the law says in California that the student gets to keep the textbook. Now if they want to sell it in the used textbook market, that's fine, that's their choice, but they get to keep it. Well, the new model from the commercial textbook publishers um, is that they want to make the first sale to every student, right? They don't want to use textbook market. They don't make any money in the used textbook market. 
But if I give you something that's digital, it, can't you just give it to your friend? Well, of course you could, right? And that's one of the affordances of digital things. And so what do the textbook companies do? Well, they time bomb the materials, right? They put a time bomb on it so that three months after you turn the key and turn the thing on, poof, your access goes away. Well, this violated California law. And so the textbook uh, companies went in, 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 by the way, in closed doors, illegal, breaking the sunshine law, uh, the laws of California, and they had these meetings and the, uh, voila, the outcome of the meeting was that it's okay to change the law so that the textbook companies can sell these time bomb materials. Well, this is a picture of Daryl Steinberg, who's the, uh, the, the head of the Senate who stopped this thing. And uh, he said, no, no, this is not okay. And in fact, we're going to challenge it. Some light was shed on it by the press. Uh, and they beat the, the, the publisher model back and, and, and kept the law. So Steve, go to the next slide if you would, and it says defeated, right? So that one got killed. Let's go to the next one. So uh, the next one was, you probably all know the department, uh, and, and go ahead and read what's in uh, bold here if you would. Uh, the Department of Labor put out $2 billion uh, to community colleges to build the next generation of courseware. And uh, they require that on those public funds, again, good public policy, said you must share what you build because, hey, this is federal taxpayer money and you've got to put a CC by license on what you build. This was the response from, uh, from uh, many uh, American Association of Publishers and, and others who said we don't like that. And this is absolutely nuts. I mean, read this thing. It says you, it doesn't say anything about open licensing or not. It just says you can't build anything if it already exists in the market or, and this is my favorite part, if somebody, if some commercial entity in the market is going to build it. So vaporware is fair game to stop you, Columbia Basin Community College, from developing anything. So let, let's, let's, let's make this concrete. Uh, the University of Utah wants to build the next developmental math program because they've got this really great school of education and the, and the math department have, have partnered and they go for one of these Department of Labor grants. The answer would be, no, I'm sorry, you can't build it or take a grant to do so because the uh, McGraw-Hill can sell it to you. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Or Pearson might think of developed, uh, you know, developmental ed. Well, let's go to the next slide. That obviously was garbage, and so it too got defeated. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, SOPA, we all saw SOPA and PIPA in the Senate. Um, and let's go to the next slide of the Wikipedia blackout. You saw what happened here, right? That, again, the, the community, we all stood up and we said, no, we will have a free and an open internet. And in fact, having that is absolutely critical. So let's go to the next slide, the HR 3699, and then I'll pause after, uh, after this. This is the new one. This one, by the way, is still live. Um, and this is going right at the open access uh, that we were just talking about where journals and research should be uh, freely and openly available to the taxpayers that paid for it. Um, this again is AAP, American Association of Publishers, and Elsevier and others who are members, saying, uh, no, uh, sorry, from now on uh, the public uh, may no longer have access to what it pays for, uh, and this is the language that they use. And so if you translate this bill, put it in plain speak, it literally says, if public tax money is used to fund research and that research uh, becomes quote unquote private research once the publisher quote adds value to it by managing the peer review process and then distributing 
get to us. So the publishers, I kid you not, are arguing that the value that they are adding is in the peer review process, which they do not do, right? They facilitate. The, the peer reviewers are the faculty out there around the world, the experts in the field, who are working for free. These people aren't getting paid anything. So that's adding value from the publisher's standpoint. And then their distribution to us. So the thousands of dollars that they charge our libraries and they put the thing in the mail and send it to us, give me a break. We have the most powerful distribution tool called the Internet that the world has ever known. And if that's really their argument for adding value, and frankly that's the kind of the core of what this bill sits on, I, I think they're in, they're in real trouble. So uh, one more slide, Steve, to the T-shirt. It says C rules number one. So, you know, this is where, you know, I, I get excited about open policy. Uh, and that is that uh, we need to simply change the conversation. And we have to say uh, we are uh, a unique market in education. We are both the producers of textbooks and of research and of courses. And we're simply, uh, we're not going to play by those rules anymore because we know better. Because we know that when we use public funds, we should share what we build because the public should get what it paid for. We know how to use the Internet as a distribution model. We know that you can make a billion copies of a digital file. The marginal cost is zero. We know it costs nothing to store, it costs nothing to distribute, and it costs nothing to make copies. We know these things. We know how to use Creative Commons licenses, and we're not going to put up with these business models anymore. So Steve, back to you. So I'm getting a note from my staffers to ask some questions. They're, they're all around me. <laughs> Okay, so here's my dilemma, right? Uh, um, I, I, we spent a lot of time recently talking about Finland and talking about their policies, their education policies in Finland. And, and intriguingly, Finland has much more of a consensus culture, and their their national narratives uh, are much more around consensus than they are around competition. So our national narratives are much more around uh, competing interests. Our legal system, our political system, our economic system, the larger narrative is not fairness. It is that people compete in order to get to a greater good. Uh, I worry a little about this particular approach of, the, of uh, as brilliant as I think it is, that it plays into this same narrative around sort of money driving decision making. And I, there's a part of me that wants to really sort of stand up and give you a standing ovation for this. And there's another part of me that says, I don't think we should even be playing in this arena. That in order to do this, you just disrupt from the outside. You just make it possible for people to aggregate content in ways that are going to just completely shift the game. Because I don't want to play into that existing narrative. I don't think we. I don't think it can be beaten. So how do you resolve that dilemma? Yeah. So so I resolve that dilemma by cheating and doing all the uh, strategies and angles simultaneously. So I don't choose one route. The only reason that I'm even talking about open policy and actually you know, engaging in these conversations with governments is because only a few people are. And I haven't seen anybody that's sort of crystal clear on the main points, right? They fuss around different parts of it. I wanted to come out and very, in a very clean way, lay on the table what proper public policy should be with public funds, right? And, and, and these are not my original ideas. All I'm doing is mushing together other people's ideas. So, so let me say let me say what I mean by cheating and doing everything at once. So first, um, I think that there's uh, when people get concerned about whether or not 
the government should be involved at all in these conversations, especially in a capitalistic economy where intellectual property is more and more important in the 21st century. Um, I uh, demand that whoever I'm talking to, that we are thoughtful about uh, splitting the conversation into two parts. And it's really important because if you don't do that, you'll get wrapped around a pole very quick. So the first question, I think, is should the government do something, right? So because that's usually where, uh, where political fights will go haywire on you. If some people think that, you know, the government should be involved doing a certain thing and some people say they shouldn't. So, and I think that's a fine debate. It's not one that I'm particularly interested in, right? So um, I think it's fair to say you know, should California um, get involved with funding the creation of textbooks? Remember, they're not building them. They're going to put out competitive RFPs and may the best vendor win. So in fact, it's a very competitive process. But it's a fair debate to say, should California get in the business of funding textbooks? Um, I happen to think they should because there's so much pain for students, et cetera. But, but that's a fair debate. It, it's fair to say, you know, should the government do anything? It's a second conversation to say, once the government has decided to fund something and it's using public money to do it, should that thing be shared with the public that paid for it? That's what this conversation is about. So the NIH has, is in the business of funding basic research around science. NSF is in the business of funding uh, you know, scientific research. Uh, you know, the Department of Energy is in the business of funding you know, the next uh, perpetual motion machine or whatever it might be. Right? They've already made those decisions. Congress gives them money to do certain things. All I'm saying is once that decision has been made, let the people get access to what they paid for. Right? The public should have access to what it paid for. And let, let me give you another example to try to make this even more obvious. Think about your hometown and uh, think about the new road that's going in on Main Street where you grew up. Right? And that road is being paid for by the, by the gas taxes that you pay and your neighbors pay and the, the people in the next county overpay. And it's federal gas taxes and it's state gas taxes. And that's what's going to pay for the road. And so you paid for the road. Should, so here's the question. Should you be allowed to drive on the road that you paid for? Most people would say, yeah. Right? I paid for the damn road. I, I'm the taxpayer. Let me, let me drive on the road. How would you feel as a taxpayer if your, your taxes paid for the road and then there was a big toll booth on the road and the contractor who got the bid to lay down the concrete to build the road said, uh, we got the bid to build this thing. By the way, we own it. We have the, we have the rights to this road and we're going to charge you again. We're going to charge you a second time. You've already been charged once through your gas taxes. We're not going to charge you a second time to drive on this road, right? You'd lose it. You'd come absolutely unglued. It would be on the fleecing of America on Brian Williams on NBC and the thing would get shut down tomorrow. And yet that's exactly what we do with educational resources. That's exactly what's happening in my state and every other state with all the funding of education that's being produced, all the courses. It's exactly what's happening when textbooks are produced. It's exactly what's happening when research is produced, right? So, so that's part of the answer. The other answer is, and this is another angle, is Steve, you are absolutely right. Um, these systems will fight like crazy. They've got money. They've got lobbyists. It will be slow change. And so we simultaneously disrupt. We do things like, let me go back a couple slides here. We do things like, 
this, right? We do peer-to-peer -peer university where we say, ah, scrap the existing system. People want to get together and learn, and they want to get badges uh, when they do. Uh, for a new form of accreditation. Western Gov comes up and says, ah, forget seat time, right? We're going to do competency-based and we'll give you credit based on your prior, prior experience. Straighter Line comes along and says, 100 bucks a month, all the community college courses you can eat. University of the People comes along and says, wow, uh, open educational resources? That's interesting. That's free stuff. I think we'll build a curriculum on that. We'll take the open course library and we'll educate everybody in the world and we'll get all those baby boomers who are retiring who are willing to work for free because they were all hip to the Peace Corps and we'll, uh, we'll get them to volunteer. In fact, they've got over a thousand of them. You've got OER University who, uh, based out of New Zealand and the Commonwealth of Learning which is saying, yeah, you know, people are going to learn all over the place. They're going to need a place like WGU or other uh, uh, partner institutions they have uh, to come and get their accreditation. Uh, by the way, WGU is, I don't think, one of their anchor institutions. Uh, but Empire State College in New York is. Uh, so there are these new models that are totally disruptive models that do not obey any of the existing rules or structures of higher ed. And they're simply saying, uh, we're not going to play by those rules anymore. So let me, uh, I just got a few more slides. Let me just wrap real quick and then we can start talking some more. So back to the boring policy makers, right, that uh, are going to be slow to change and slow to understand. Um, I think it's still worth talking to them. And here's, well, A, because they've got all the money. Um, but B, uh, if, you, if you talk to them about these, these points and use these kinds of arguments, you will be shocked at how quickly they say, yes, how can I help? So if you, if you bring them back to what I call first principles uh, that they care about, and this may not be your philosophy, but this is what politicians care about, efficient use of public funds to increase student success and access. That's what they care about when they're making education investments. And this second point here is sort of a, is sort of a trick. If you can get them to understand and agree that um, existing business models were okay in their day, but hey, the world has changed and there's new possibilities. And you educate them about the affordances of digital things and all the other stuff we've talked about, then you can get them thinking in new ways. And so the end game is that uh, we move forward with politicians with these, uh, with these discussions. So, um, and let me uh, go back to my, my other slides here real quick because I had a quote I wanted to give. So, the, by the way, these are the only pictures I took uh, at the MLK uh, Memorial, and you can see they're by Cable Green, but they're under a CC BY license, so you can take them and use them if you'd like to. Um, so you remember that food machine that we started with at the beginning, and we said, yeah, we turned it on if the marginal cost of sharing was zero? We don't have a food machine, and it's as, as lousy as a deal that is. We wish we had one. We don't. But we do have a learning machine. And, and uh, in fact, if we are willing, and let's go to the next uh, slide, Steve, to the open slide. If we're willing to simply turn it on, right, if we as faculty are willing to share, um, that's, that's all it takes. We put an open license, we've got a Creative Commons license on our works, other people will take advantage of them. And moreover, because those of us in this room either already understood before we came or we now have a better understanding of the tools that are possible with the Internet and the strategies that we can use, I contend, and in fact, I put this responsibility on you, that we have a moral and an ethical responsibility to act. Good news is we're off to a good start. There are many open policies out there. We didn't have time to talk about a lot of them today, um, but it's, it's starting to happen. So let me uh, come back here. So let me just uh, put out this offer. Uh, Creative Commons, and this is part of my job at Creative Commons, we stand with you on these 
issues and these topics. If you have an open policy opportunity in your state, in your country, and you want our help, we stand with you uh, in this, this fight and in this change. And uh, important closing thought uh, for all of us, in the 21st century, the opposite of open is no longer closed. The opposite of open is broken. I uh, thank you very much. Uh, that's my email address and there's my uh, Twitter. Now if you want to find my blog, just go to Google and type in cable space OER, cable OER, and you'll find uh, my blog. I tweet about this stuff all the time. And as I find new resources, I, uh, I put them up there. Back to you, Steve. So Cable, we've gone over our normal hour, and as a courtesy to our guests, we normally finish quickly so you can go do other things. I have one more question, and, and I'm wondering if you have time for that, or how much time you want to give us, or should we cut it off now? No, I got plenty of time. I've got uh, probably another 15 minutes I could I could take. Okay, I appreciate that. So I, this is a this question is going to drive us a little deep, and I'm curious as to how you uh, how you'll perceive it. Um, I've been watching my own behavior, and and you know I gave a talk in, at the uh, at the conference in Park City on sort of the cognitive and cultural barriers to openness, and and I'm interested in my own personal interest and how it often trumps my willingness to share. Right or to or to do things that would fall into the category of open, and in particular, my use of Google Chrome over Firefox. I'm a huge fan of Mozilla. I'm a, you know, I mean, I've been in the open source world for a long time now, but at some level, I justify to myself something uh, out of ease of use or sort of personal benefit when there's a part of me that says I should be taking the higher road. Uh, is there a degree to which we are? combating not just political forces here, but some of our own kind of internal cognitive forces? And are there ways in which this is difficult for us because we may not be built to always share? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really important question. And there's actually um, uh, an important conversation that's happening right now, not called OER, but called OEP for Open Education Practices. And um, they are not obvious, right? So uh, the idea of, hey, when I build something, I'll slap an open license on it. Yeah, it takes you an extra 10 seconds to do it. Uh, it's relatively simple, but to even think about doing it is a practice that you kind of have to get into. Um, but before I go into the practices, uh, let me just say this. Um, I, I'm a case in point of the point I'm about to make. I believe that people are generally good and that most educators generally want people to learn, and that most educators and people involved in research or education or funding of education um, generally believe that sharing knowledge is a good thing and that sharing knowledge is really the way that fields and the academy in general moves forward. Okay, so I, I believe that. Um, I also believe, as you correctly pointed out, that sharing uh, those objects, those artifacts, is not a natural act and that especially in this country, we are predisposed not to share. Um, uh, you know, big, big part of I think the problem is our education system, especially as we are uh, training people uh, through K-12 and in higher ed. Uh, we, uh, we set up competitive uh, situations. We say don't share your answers with somebody else. Don't give somebody else the test questions. Don't share your paper. Don't you dare plagiarize. I'm not advocating for plagiarism, but we actually encourage people to have original thoughts and original ideas, and we really downplay remix, 
um, as being a, a valid educational activity. That's starting to change, right? Most people uh, who are uh, education reformers, in fact, uh, understand that remix and uh, taking other people's works and then giving credit, but 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 creating new things is is absolutely critical. So my own personal story on this was when I was at the Ohio Learning Network, and this was 2003, 2004 maybe. My boss walks into my, I hope she's not on right now, Kate carries her name. She's a wonderful woman. But Kate was my boss. And Kate walks in and says, Cable, what's up with these blogs? Like what are blogs and are they any, are they any good for education? I'd never heard of a blog. I didn't know what it was. I was the director of technology. That was my job. So I, I said, I don't know. Let me, uh, give me a couple hours. I'll look into it and I'll get back to you. So I hop on my computer. I, I look up blogs. I read a bunch of blogs. I walk back into my boss's office and I said, blogs are stupid. Blogs are all about people's cats. They're about recipes. They're about uh, you know why somebody didn't want to go to work today so they could go skiing. Uh, they have absolutely no redeeming educational value whatsoever. Um, then somebody asked me the same thing about Twitter and et cetera, and I had similar answers. Not as stuff's crap. Education takes place in the classroom, et cetera. Um, boy, was I wrong. And the main reason, and this is my point that I was wrong, is that I didn't have lived experience myself, and because I hadn't done it yet, I couldn't understand it. So until, and what happened, so sort of the end of the story is when I started to blog, when I started to tweet, when I started to uh, put open licenses on my works, I hadn't gotten any smarter, and I really hadn't gotten any more interesting, but boy, I started getting offers to do keynote speeches all over the place. And I got offers to be on boards of new universities. And I got offers to write book chapters. And I got new consulting gigs. I got all sorts of this great stuff started happening to me. And I went, oh, I get it. When I share, more people are going to be able to know about what I'm doing. They'll be able to access what I'm doing. Um, I started to, my boss from then on, Kate would start walking into my office with very complex educational technology problems. And she would say, uh, you know, could you please solve this? I didn't have the foggiest idea how to solve it, but I knew that if I shared my problem, other people would help me solve my problem. And I still do that today. When I, have a, when I have a big problem or I can't find some data or something, what do I do? I throw it out on Twitter. I put it on my blog. I put it out to the listeners that I'm on and I say, I, I have a problem and I need help. Will somebody please help me? And I think that that's exactly the same thing that you're saying and you're doing when you put an open license on your textbook or on your course. You're saying, I'm a faculty member and I've done the best job I can on this course and, and it's really good, but I know it can be better. But the only, the only way it's going to get better is if I put an open license on it and I share it because then others will find errors that I've made. Others will make iterative improvements to it. But Steve, you're right, that, that step from I don't share and my value is what I hold tight and that I don't share with you to the more I share, the more valuable I become and the more valuable my work becomes, that's a big step. And so my advice to people is always you know, share a little bit. You know, share, put an open license on your blog. Uh, share your images on Flickr. Maybe put your, uh, when you put videos up on YouTube, uh, stop using the standard YouTube license and start using the CC BY license. Uh, these are all small steps people can take, and then maybe they'll share one of their courses under an open license. Uh, but you take these baby steps, and pretty soon, really good things start happening to people when they share, and it clicks like it clicked for me. So uh, if you look at our Constitution, 
there was a lot of thought around how do you create a way to protect freedom, knowing that human nature will sort of, or at least the belief that human nature would trend toward selfishness. Uh, in this sort of utopian vision of sharing, which I agree with, um, do we think that we've reached the place because of the technology where we can overcome those natural difficulties, or do we do we need to be thinking about larger policy structures to protect ourselves from ourselves, to protect the freedom from the from the potential desire to to uh, take advantage of it? It's a good question, but let's go to the specifics of copyright in the Constitution, right? So the Constitution has one or two sentences on copyright. It basically says, um, we're going to give you a monopoly on your creative work for a short period of time. And if I, I may get my, my date screwed up here, but it was, I think it was 14 years, and then you had to go back and actually renew it for another 14 years. And so, uh, but there were a couple things at play there. One is you actually had to go get a copyright. You had to file for the copyright. And then you had to file to renew the copyright. Now it was only about a page to renew it. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't too difficult to do. But the result of those two things was that uh, very, you know, relatively few people applied for a copyright. Uh, most things were just shared. Um, and then uh, the people that applied for the copyright in round one, I think it was only 30 to 40 percent of them actually uh, reapplied to continue their copyright. Because remember, what a copyright is is really a short-term monopoly uh, on your creative work before it goes into the public domain. But eventually, it goes into the public domain. So you know, what has happened to copyright? You look at the history of copyright, and uh, the Congress, right, the, the people who make laws, have extended it and changed it. We have the Sonny Bono Act. So I think what we're up to now in the U.S. is it's right, death plus 70 years. And, and is that appropriate? Is that an appropriate amount of time to protect somebody's copyright to make the, you know, the short-term financial gain that they're going to be able to make from their song or their video or their textbook before it goes into the public domain. Because if you think about it, a monopoly is really the public saying, we grant you the individual the rights to not share for a period of time before you have to share and it goes into the public domain. And again, back to your point, Steve, about lobbying and money. Um, what's happened is lobbying and money has caused copyright to get longer and longer and longer. So that's really why Creative Commons, uh, one of the main reasons why it was started was to be disruptive to that and yet to respect copyright and to work within the copyright system. And so and the cool thing about Creative Commons licenses, of course, is it's global. So if, um, back to your point, Steve, about having disruptive models of higher ed, like peer-to-peer -peer university or university of the people, as individuals, and this is what's really cool, as individuals, individual creators who are building stuff, um, we have the choice to ignore um, and say we do not agree to abide by those rules that the Congress has set for us about death plus 70. I'm going to put my stuff into the public domain today. So Creative Commons is a public domain tool where if you wanted to just put your stuff right into the public domain, totally give up your copyright, you can do that. Uh, a lot of people don't want to do that. They want to keep their copyright, which is fine. But Creative Commons licenses allow you to say, yeah, I'll share, but under these conditions. And so that, that's what's cool, right? Is, I mean, you look at, like, say, the Arab Spring, right? People took 
communication tools. They took cell phones plus social networking, and boom, the government lost complete control over messaging. The messaging was controlled by people who wanted to, um, you know, in, in that case, overthrow governments. And I'm not taking a political position. I'm not advocating for, you know, a revolution. All I'm saying is that the power moved from the people who made the laws and had all the money and the power to the to the individual. Same thing with open licensing. The the uh, you know McGraw Hill and Pearson and Elsevier they may have billions and billions of dollars and they may give campaign contributions. And they may try to get laws passed, but we don't have to play by those rules. Um, so you know, Steve, I don't know if you caught my my. Uh, my uh, tech or my uh, chat a minute ago, but uh, my request to Steve, I didn't, I forgot to ask him before, is that my this recording, since I participated uh, at no cost and on my vacation, Steve, uh, that I request that this have a CC BY license on it. And I hope, I, I don't know, but I hope Steve puts Creative Commons license on all his stuff. I don't know if he does or not, but I'll well, certainly push in that direction. Let me get off the mic. The, the website that hosts all of the recordings does have a Creative Commons license on it, but I don't actually put any license at all on the recordings. They, they basically go into the public domain. So um, I'll be, I want to leave this question hanging because, in fact, the, the, the Egypt example is a really good one. After the participation by the individuals, after the sort of change in narrative, is this period of time that feels very fragile? And it's not clear to me that, in fact, that movement isn't is going to move forward in all positive ways and isn't going to be co-opted. And that's sort of my question, which is, when you get past the early adopters, you get past the excitement, do you then have to do you then have to really look closely at a policy level to protect those freedoms? Because, in fact, uh, that Tahrir Square moment isn't the isn't the final end of the story. Hey, you've been really generous with your time. I'm I'm going to clap for you here. I, I do have to tell you, I have a huge amount of appreciation for this message, and uh, really appreciate what you do, the work that you've done, and the work that you're doing. And I want to thank you for coming on. Great. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks everybody for coming. It was a real honor. Most appreciated. Uh, take care, everybody. We know we kept you a little bit longer tonight. Cable, thanks to your family, your in-laws, everybody who allowed you to make this, uh, spend this time with us. Really appreciate it. Have a great night or day, everybody. Take care. Bye now.